So we've been going through Revelation, and we're in chapter 9. If you've not been with us uh, for portions of that, please go back and, and, and get some of the podcast stuff because I'm going to try and catch us up a little bit and kind of set a level playing field, but I can only do so much in, in the time that we have. And what I want to say is that as we read this, these words, in, in particular today as we read these words, people will, will understand them differently. There are at least four really good ways to read it, and they're all really good for a reason, that respected Bible scholars would believe and, and attribute uh, Revelation to be interpreted that way. I want to just summarize those in relation to where we're at today, if you missed that. It was in one of the introduction sermons uh, to Revelation. You can go back and hear a further explanation of that. But for, for the sake of today, I want to remind you of what those are. You can read Revelation as a historicist. And what that means is that you would believe that these events, and you would interpret these events, the ones that we're reading today, in fact, a historicist would interpret all of this stuff that we're reading today to have already taken place throughout history, in particular the stuff today in chapter 9. Most historicists would say this has happened in the 7th and the 8th centuries. And that it's talking about um, the invading Turks, um, and, and that happened, and it has this time period, and, and that the sin that's referred to here is the sin of the Catholic Church, and the star that's referred to is, is the Pope. That's a historicist would, would believe that, and that's one way to read this. A, a preterist would look at chapter 9, and they would say, well, I believe Revelation was actually written before A.D. 70, and because it was written before A.D. 70, the prophecy was for the destruction of the temple. And so they would look and they would read that and they would see that this, this stuff today that we're talking about, well, that's the invading Roman army as they're surrounding Jerusalem. And the woes that take place are what the, the Jews went through as, as Jerusalem was falling and the temple um, was destroyed. A preterist would believe that this has been fulfilled around the time of AD 70. Now, a futurist, you can kind of figure this one out, believes it's going to happen in the future. And they would believe that all of the stuff that we see in Revelation would be interpreted at a future time. And that the stuff that's written has not yet taken place. Now the interpretations for the stuff today and for all the stuff in Revelation, that varies a lot. The timeline varies a lot. But the, the, the general interpretation of it happening in the future is the same. In fact, one of the things today, a very um, a common one that a lot of you may be familiar with, would be that the locusts um, are not actual locusts, but they're attack helicopters. Um, and that the, the sting is, is like a poison gas sting. And so you're thinking, oh, wow, that's like a, a military warfare. That's how a futurist would read this. The last one, uh, the fourth one, is a spiritualist view. A spiritualist would believe that the fulfillment is seen um, either entirely spiritual or like a combination of spiritual interpretation being expressed throughout history. So we can see the expression over history, but the interpretation is spiritual in nature. And rather than specific fulfillments, they would read and interpret these things in a spiritual sense and that it can be applicable to any Christian during any age. Uh, you, you hear the phrase that Scott has mentioned, already and not yet. That's a spiritualist type of a phrase. We want to be transparent and tell you that, that Scott is very definitely reading with a spiritualist interpretation. And it's the one that I'm leaning toward as well. Before we began this study together as a church, I probably would have read it differently. 
Um, I certainly had it interpreted to me differently. Um, And that's all okay. I'm just finding right now God is speaking to me big time as I interpret it with a spiritualist filter. That does not mean that if you interpret as a historicist that you need to change. It doesn't mean that. All four of those are well-respected and great ways to read this book. And let me tell you this. All four of them will stretch you and grow your faith. You see, if you read this passage that we're studying today with all four of those interpretations, it'll take you to a different place where you worship God in a unique way. It's all really cool. So let's jump in. Let's start in verse 13 of chapter 8 because based on the structure, that's really where we should begin. So let's start in verse 13. So flip back a page or so if you're right there. Here's what it says. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth as the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And now we're in chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like the lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. When I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For by the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like the serpents, are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, 
which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor, <clears throat> excuse me, nor do they repent of their mur- murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Big passage today. Big, big stuff that we see and we begin in, in, in really in 8, um, verse 13. And Scott talked about that last week. If you missed last week's sermon, it would be helpful to go back and, and hear that and listen to that. You can find that online on our website. Um, last week's uh, sermon left off there with, with this verse 13. And we see an eagle, unless you're reading a King James Version today, then you see an angel. Um, in fact, actually, the, the crazy thing is John doesn't see this. You see, it says John heard heard. So I think the point there is that we would hear. In fact, if we can kind of say, what is the point of this eagle slash angel? Um, I think it's eagle, but eagle is, is what we see there. What's the point is to announce three woes, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet blast. Today in chapter nine, we have the fifth and the sixth. And then in chapter 11, we're going to see the seventh. So in chapter 9, we see the very beginning as a star had fallen, um, and we immediately would think back to chapter 8. If you were reading through chapter 8, you saw that just a few sentences ago in verse 10, it says, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water. So we immediately recall back, because we see the star, it had fallen, that's a few uh, sentences ago, and we know that that's there. the, the tense of the word here means that John actually didn't watch it fall. He had seen that it had fallen. So the, the way to understand that would be that he sees it um, having fallen, but he actually didn't watch it fall from the sky. The, the star, and he identifies it that, is given a key to this bottomless pit. Um, this bottomless pit, if you are um, reading in the NIV, is not called a bottomless pit. It's called the abyss. It says a star was given and the key to the shaft of the abyss. I think this is not hell or Hades as it's referred to, but something more similar to like a prison um, where demons are kept. Some type of a prison. Um, if you look in Luke chapter 8, if you have a Bible, turn there. Luke 8, it'll be on the screen. But Luke 8 tells this story that we're familiar with about a demon possession. It's um, when they're going, and you remember this demon possession with this guy. Well, let's look at the first in verse 30. It says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And so you remember this story, right? The, it's one guy who doesn't have just one demon, bunch of demons. And so he's uh, possessed with a lot of, uh, of demons. And, um, and then you know the rest of the story. Um, they, they get cast into the pigs and then rah, run into the water. Um, well, look at verse 31. And they, this is the demons, begged him, begged Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, I've read that story a lot. I didn't think about abyss. Not until I was reading Revelation here and looking and saying, abyss, abyss. Okay, it's the same thing. What do we see about the demons is they're begging, begging not to be put in the abyss. Now, here's, what I, here's my takeaway. When people come and they joke about this party going on in hell and they can't wait to get there, and they joke about what's going to happen as they party it up with Satan and the demons, why in the world, why, I can't even fathom, why demons would beg that somehow it's better for them to go into a pig and run into water than it is to go into the abyss? 
We, when, we, when we hear somebody joking about that, they, they have a thorough misunderstanding of hell and of demons and of torture. But we see this abyss, bottomless pits. Not the first time we'll see it. We'll actually start to see it more in Revelation. We're going to see it in chapter 11 and 17. And what we see there is we're going to see this beast that rises up out of the pit. And then in Revelation 20, that's the good news. Satan is cast into the pit, locked and sealed. So we'll see this pit again, but here we are, first woe. That's the fifth trumpet here. The focus is really, really clear. The concept is, is shifted from the first four trumpet blasts where creation was, was the result of, of the judgment. Now it's shifting to humans. The, the, the point here in the fifth trumpet is that humans are being persecuted but not killed. In fact, let's just say tormented but not killed. The command given to the locust, and we don't have time to talk about all the ways people would interpret locust. It's really cool, but we don't have that time today. But if you would grab something like that Four Views book, and you would begin to read through that, you'll see just an overview of what those different interpretive views would be. Um, so we see that they're given a command, um, and, uh, and the words here are, are, are quite striking. It says, ignore the earth seek out humans don't harm the grass don't harm the earth seek humans but don't kill don't kill them torment them torment who torment the people who don't have the seal do you remember the seal Do you remember that from a few weeks ago when we talked about revelation 7 do you remember scott talking about that if not look that sermon up and listen to it Revelation 7, we're talking about the seal and how the seal has been placed on the foreheads. And if you remember, that's a number, 144,000. And so Scott talked about that. And I told you already, we're, we're reading this with a spiritualist viewpoint. And so when we, we read those who have the seal, we read that this is the church, that this is those who are Christians who have the seal. That's not how everybody reads that, but that's how we read this. And so when we get here and we think about the seal, uh, what we would read in a spiritualist view would be that this is not Christians. Everyone, even regardless of how you would view this, would kind of sum up on this bottom line. This may be something you want to write down under that fifth trumpet thing. That in the period before the end, the wicked will be subjected to a time of torment. That's a good bottom line. All views. In the period before the end, the wicked will be subjected to a time of torment. We believe God's people are saved from this torment, whether it's five months or not. Uh, at times, and, and, and numbers are difficult in Revelation. They don't always mean the exact stuff. Um, so, so whether it's that or not, God's people are sealed, and they are, um, they are not a part of this. Um, and so the torment that comes from these locusts, I would read these locusts as being coming up out of this place where demons are locked. And this is a, some form of a demonic army that comes and, uh, and that torments. And, and the reason I would read it that way is then what happens next, it says the people would seek death, but they can't find it. How in the world? Like, I'll jump off a cliff. Like, how? I mean, I just don't get that. Well, here's how I get that. In the, in the New Testament, we see when people are possessed by demons, they, like, they, they try to kill themselves, but like in some way, they're not in control of their own destiny. That's important. In some way. They're not in control of their own destiny. That it's in some way given over to a demonic force. And they're not in control. So in other words, they can't just end the suffering. It's, it, you can't. 
You're not in control of your destiny. This description then about this torment and this stuff that's happening, I'm reading this, and I'm just like, wow. I read this the first time, like a couple weeks ago, when I was preparing to preach for uh, this chapter. I read it, and and I was, I, I remember I was in my office, and Scott was kind of back here in the back area of the church, and I walked back to him, and I said, I'm not doing this. And I, I said, this is craziness, locusts with hair. And I, like, I was so taken by this description. It was rattling my heart. And I was shaken up inside. I can't tell you what it all means here, but I can tell you what I felt like here. And I believe that regardless of what it means here, God wants you today to feel something here and to be shaken. This is a massive demonstration of God's power. So let's take a break. Chapter, uh, verse 12. It's the only break you get. One short sentence. Let's look at it. The first woe passed. Behold, the next is to come. That's it. Okay. Time in. We're at the second one. The second one. And let me tell you, each trumpet that blows, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we're getting, and we're, and we're building up. And so then here we are, sixth trumpet, um, verses 13 through 19. It gets pretty intense. Um, there are a couple interesting things about this section here when we read this part about this army, this, this gathering. We hear this voice that comes. Um, some people think that voice is Jesus. I think it's interesting to think about that. Uh, no red letters. So we don't know for sure. Um, so we don't know for sure, but it's interesting to think maybe it's Jesus. I don't know. Other people would say it's something else, but here's what we see. The command is given to, re- to let the four angels who are kind of holding back this force. Okay. Angels like, here's your job prepared for this one thing. Now, do, like, that's it. How cr- Wild, right? Four angels, one purpose. All it is this thing forever. One purpose, pretty big purpose. So they release from this great river Euphrates. I'm reading that and I'm thinking, Nolachucky River. No. What's Euphrates River? Well, that's like way over there. That's not what I know. But it's what people over here knew. And here's what we know. You know, you know Euphrates. Old Testament. We study the Bible, right? We get this. Old Testament. There's all these passages that talk about these armies coming across the great river Euphrates. And what are they coming to do? They're coming to bring a a military victory over the nation of Israel. Why? Because they've sinned. And so you've got that. I mean, like, if you're interested, I've got that. It's like Isaiah 5, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Jeremiah 1. I've got all that if you want. All these places um, where we see this army coming across this great river Euphrates. And here's what that symbolizes. That a foreign army comes to bring judgment on God's people because of their sin. So they had sinned, they had turned their back on God. God says, I'll bring people across the river. And they did. So here's what we think about. That when we're talking about this army across Euphrates, we know God is in charge of the judgment. Not some invading army. It was never about the Babylonians. It was about God. We know that it's, it's, it's God being in charge of judgment. And this is no small demonstration of power. Any of you do the math? Twice times 10,000 times. I didn't do that math. I was like calculator. And then it, it like gave me some like E thing and I didn't know what that meant. So then I was like, okay, I have to look this up. 200 million, that's the math, 200 million mounted 
soldiers or troops. But not just mounted on horseback, right? No, no. Mounted on horses that have heads like lions. That's weird. But then they breathe out fire, smoke, and sulfur. But that's not all. The worst part. Tails like snakes. I hate snakes. And so I'm reading this and I'm thinking, lots and lots and lots and lots of troops bringing God's judgment, terrifying description, terrifying description. How does this happen? Well, I wanted to, fig- I wanted to just kind of figure that. I read something in one of the um, commentaries this week that said, if you were to um, line up in one column all of these mounted soldiers, then what you would find is you would have a column of one mile wide and 85 miles long. I thought, so? Like, I didn't, I didn't understand that. I said, i got to put that in my terms. So I'm out at Earth Fair this week, and I'm sitting there using, drinking their coffee because they have good coffee. And I'm writing down on a napkin. I'm doing all my math there. And here's what I figured out, guys. So if you go on, on I-40 um, or um, Interstate, you got the, um, the shoulder, two lanes, median, shoulder. I was like, how far apart is that? I looked that up. So you got these horses, and you line them up across shoulder to shoulder all the way across the median. You don't think how far that's going to stretch? Across the whole United States. The whole United States. So you think about an interstate of, 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 of an army, and then it says, this army is gathered at the river Euphrates. The angels release them. They come in, and they enact God's judgment. I don't care about 200 million. In fact, uh, people would say that's, that's too big of a, of a military force to even sustain. In World War II, uh, the estimated combined um, military at any given point combined both bad people, good people, combined, allied, and Axis. I took my history class. was well, 70 million combined. That's, this is a lot. Here's what I want you to get. I'm stressing this. God's demonstration of his power is huge. God is serious about sin. God is serious about judging sin. It doesn't matter if these are real horses, tails, whatnot, 200 million. Here's what we need to know. God is serious about demonstrating his judgment on wicked sin. Verse 20 and 21. Killed a third of the people. And then it says, those who were not killed by these plagues did not repent, and they continued to worship demons. That breaks my heart. No one, no one repented. And God wants repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, I hear people say this a lot. If, if God would just whip up a miracle for me, then I'd believe in him. Or like right now, I just God, show me that you're powerful. Like strike that tree, lightning, no storm. Just strike it right now, lightning, and I'll believe. You hear people say that type of stuff. And, and here's what we know. We read this here in Revelation, and we see, you, got, you already know this. You're going to see this. You already know when that happens, people end up worshiping the miracle and not the one who brought the miracle. They end up worshiping the demonstration of power and not the one who demonstrated their power. 
You see what happens here is that the people, they didn't repent. The purpose was repentance and they didn't repent. They ended up worshiping the demons who brought the power. God used them. God's behind the judgment and they still worship demons. When people say they just want, you've got to whip up a miracle and then I'll believe. They're just going to worship the miracle. The truth for us is that God has already clearly demonstrated his power. God has demonstrated his power for you and I enough to know and to see and experience that. We've seen the picture of God's holiness, so what's our response? What are we left to do in light of this passage? I'll tell you, um, Scott, last week asked a question. I want to repeat it for you. Do you think that human sin warrants the kind of judgment that we see in Revelation? Do you think that human sin warrants this type of judgment? Because if we don't believe that our sin deserves judgment, then we've misunderstood God. It's hard. I'm not going to say it's not. It's hard to to grab the judgment and wrath of God and, and then on the other hand grab his love and mercy. That's hard. But I promise they don't contradict. All week, you want to know what it did to me? My response? I was repentant. I found myself literally in my office this week falling to my knees in prayer and in worship. I fell to my knees and I said, how could I live and be okay with sinful thoughts at all? Like how, how could I get to a place where I would be okay with that? Because I, I live my life sometimes and I just I feel like I get okay with being with sin happening around me and in me. And I, th- I get comfortable in this little seat of grace. Oh, God's grace. And I, I get so comfortable that I become okay with sin. I, I just was repentant. I said, God, I, I'm sorry. I was overcome. I, I went to my knees and I, I cannot read this and not be struck by God's magnitude. Um, and when I have attuned my heart to him, when I've attuned who I am and then I read this, what I see is not an angry God enacting judgment, but a loving God whose mercy is astounding. I see a God who is almost begging for repentance from his people because he loves them so much. There's a quote that I'm going to read for you. It's not in here, uh, but it'll be on the screen. It's it's on your YouVersion app if you want that. It's by James Hamilton, one of the guys in the commentaries. It says, What keeps people from heaven? The worship of gods that cannot save, gods that cannot protect, gods that cannot satisfy, gods that cannot even see, hear, or walk. What keeps people from heaven? Their love of meanness to other people. Murder. Magical manipulation, immorality, theft. God's commands do not deny us good things. God's commands protect us from evil. God is not withholding good from us. He's calling us to trust him. Do you trust him? Do you trust his word? Are you repentant of your sin? I want to end with an illustration and then we'll pray. I have young children. I have a almost five-year-old daughter and three-year-old son. And um, they're not that old yet, but they're old enough for me to know um, that they love to do wrong things. 
And, and I find myself in a position as their dad having to discipline them. Um, they're not perfect. Sorry to break that to you if you thought so. Um, and so, while I'm confessing things, sometimes, brace yourself, I lose my temper. Am I, I hope I'm not the only one. Sometimes I lose my temper when I discipline my kids and I yell like mean things that I shouldn't. And sometimes I'm more harsh than I ought to be. But you know what I found in my kids? Is that even in those times when I'm really harsh and I yell and I'm disciplining them because they've done something wrong, they literally cling to me. They, they come running at me to hug me. Sometimes even the hand that brings discipline is the hand that they hold near. They cling because they love their dad and they don't want me to be disappointed. And they're repentant of what they've done wrong. I only discipline them because I love them. And because I want them to clearly see what's wrong and what's right. And I want them to say, to turn away from the wrong thing and turn toward what is right. And so as I discipline them, I do it out of love. I know, and believe me, I know, that some fathers don't discipline out of love. I know that. And sometimes that hand is one that brings fear. But when your father disciplines you out of love, and let me tell you, our Heavenly Father brings judgment out of love, the desire behind that is repentance. And the desire behind that is to embrace your children. I love, love, love that hug that I get as their tears and snot get all over my shirt. Love it. Love it. Now let me live in ignorance, people with older kids. I believe that they'll always be repentant when I discipline them. Let me live that way. Please, please, please. They'll always be repentant. I know that's not the case, and you all know that because you're adults, right? You know that as we get older, that you can see that in yourself, that we don't, all, we don't always repent. And some of you today have a heavenly father that's been trying to get your attention through discipline, and you've not been repenting. You see, he's demonstrated his power and might to you, and you've said, mean God, and you ran. Because you neglected to see the love that's in this book. It's not mean God, it's loving Father. Would you repent today, maybe for the first time ever, that you would come up and that you would name Jesus as your Lord, and that you would say, I've sinned and I'm wrong, and God, you're holy and I'm not, and that you would name him as Lord and you would recognize that that we can only be holy because of the work of Jesus Christ and that you would accept that in baptism. Maybe some of you realize that you just need to get on your knees like I did this week and say, God, I have become too comfortable with sin. And I, I, co- I, I pretend like I can even coexist your holiness and my sin. And they don't. And, I, and I'm just in awe of how you view that and who you are, God. Maybe you would just fall to your knees in repentance this week. There's going to be an invitation for you, and we're going to sing, and, and we'd invite you to do that. Even if you want to pray with an elder, we'd love to connect.